Welcome to Tax Break, a tax podcast brought to you by the lawyers at Miller & Chevalier. I'm Steve Dixon, a tax litigation partner at Miller & Chevalier. I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Lauren Pons, who specializes in international tax and tax policy. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Steve. And we're joined today, we have a guest by uh, an MNC alum and uh, a, a very bright guy uh, and an all-around nice guy, uh, International Tax Council at Lockheed Martin, Jeff Tubbs. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Steve. Pleasure to be here. So as we, as you listeners already know, in Tax Break, we like to tackle tax law topics that we think are interesting. But our goal is to stay sufficiently high level so that you don't need to have uh, the regs in front of you. In this case, we're going to be talking about some final regs, so you don't need to have those in front of you. Uh, Lauren, it occurred to me in, in thinking about this that, you know, we uh, I, our intent was always to make this something that you could follow along if you were doing something else, like say driving, um, and right. no one's doing that anymore. So I, I hope we're still, uh, I hope people can still at least hands-free listen to our podcast. Yes, while you're on your Peloton, you can listen to our podcast. <laughs> well, I pushing listen to you when I go for neighborhood walks. There you go. Right. Pushing, yeah. a, pushing a, a stroller or exactly. walking your dog or something like that. So uh, as always, uh, we have to insert a disclaimer here. Tax break is not tax advice and you cannot rely on it as tax advice. Tax break reflects uh, only the thoughts and opinions of its hosts and guests. And our plan, so we're here to talk about the final FIDI regs that came out uh, on July 15th of this year. And our plan, Lauren, is to sort of do a couple of pods on these regs. I, I hope with in-house tax lawyers who are affected by them. Uh, but if you could start, Lauren, and give us just kind of an overview, since you were involved in it, of what, what FIDI is and, and, uh, and sort of what it's meant to do. Sure. So FIDI stands for Foreign Derived Intangible Income. And I think of FIDI as the other side of one coin and the, the opposite side would be guilty. And so together they are meant to kind of equate the rate for U.S. multinationals such that whether you conduct operations domestically or abroad, you're paying the same rate on your what is called intangible income, which is really uh, shorthand for any income in excess of a deemed routine return. And so guilty, as we know, is a way to capture that excess return earned by um, um, specified foreign corporations. And FIDI is a way for domestic companies who, who are not operating under a, a, a CFC model or foreign sub model to also take advantage of reduced rates on income that is generated abroad. Um, and that's the overview of why they both are there. Um, and so if you think about it from the perspective of a domestic company that doesn't have any foreign subs, but still accesses the foreign market, the, the goal of, of FIDI is to make sure that they, they get that same preferential rate, which is uh, 13, 13 and an eighth percent, um, effectuated by a 37.5% deduction on your foreign-derived uh, deduction-eligible income. So <laughs> a lot of terms in these regs, they are very, very dense and very fact-specific. So we're not going to go into a whole lot of uh, detail so that you don't get lost while you're walking your dog. But um, we do 
we do want to highlight some of the um, some of the big picture items, and that's why we need two episodes of Tax Break to do it. Uh, <laughs> in addition to being dense, these these breaks do have different implications for different U.S. multinationals, and different companies care about different things. So uh, we're going to focus today on. Um, some of the nuances of, of the changes between the proposed and the final regs. And I think very broadly, we can say that from proposed to final, I would think are generally taxpayer favorable changes. Um, Treasury did do a lot of work in listening and refining, um, listening to comments and refining what was in the proposed regs and, and I think making some, some really thoughtful, nuanced changes to what was in the proposed package in response to comments and further analysis. So um, I think the biggest change that taxpayers were very happy to see would, would be to the documentation requirements, um, substantiating foreign use and um, end users and, and things like that. So substantiating that what you're, you're claiming is a foreign sale or a foreign uh, a service provided to a foreign recipient is actually to a foreign person. Um, and so those regulation or those documentation rules went from extremely detailed and complex to less so for the vast majority of the affected transactions. And so um, the, the rules kind of end us with a, uh, a general blanket reference to section 6001 in the code, which just says, you know, any deduction you take, you have to be prepared to substantiate it. And then there are some specific documentation rules for certain transactions, including those uh, involving IP, some services provided to business recipients and certain sales of general property. Um, next, it's kind of a mixed bag of uh, <laughs> whether it's good for taxpayers is the treatment of RNA expense allocation. Um, proposed regs had a, had a rule that for Section 250 purposes, and we'll get into this in much, much more detail, the exclusive apportionment rule under 861-17 did not apply, um, to which there was much, much, much... Um, Your furor? Yeah. Maybe add just a Fury. few more muches and you'll be there. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> there were voluminous comments. Um, and it was just not well received, let's put it like that. So the good news is that the final regs say, you know what, we're, we're, we're scrapping that rule. The mixed news is that there's a deference to what the pending foreign tax credit regs will say with respect to expense allocation of RE. Um, so, yay no blanket rule that expense, ex, uh, exclusive apportionment doesn't apply for fitty purposes. Meh, that <laughs> we don't know how that rule is actually going to shake out. Um, but the foreign tax credit regs have left um, OIRA and we can expect them any day now. It seems like Treasury is doing a very good job of, of hewing to their, their statements that they wanted to get out all TCGA major guidance and final form by the end of this month. So we'll see if that happens. But those are the two big highlights for purposes of our chit chat with with uh, Mr. Tabs here today. And so, Jeff, why why were taxpayer? Well, can maybe you can explain sort of a, a, as a as a mechanical matter why uh, the the rule the blanket rule in the proposed regs that sort of 
precluded exclusive apportionment was caused such a furor. Sure, and the furor might be perhaps it's overstating it. Sure, and I yeah. think there were at least five <laughs> comment letters that that address this. But the the issue is is sort of similar to interest expense or certain general expenses. So you you have a contract, you have sales income, you have cost of sales, but then you have all these indirect expenses, some of which might flow through directly through things like GNA adders. But but then you've got expenses that are hard to trace. Interest is the classic example, but research and experimentation is, is the other. Uh, and so rather than tracing research that you perform on a given contract, the, the premise in the foreign tax credit world has always been that the you know, unsuccessful research is subsidized by successful research and, and vice versa. And research is inherently speculative. So you need to not trace on a facts and circumstances basis, but spread. And the, and, and the premise of the rules in Dash 17 is that you spread within what are called product categories, which are these Census Bureau classifications that you divide the world up into automotive engineering and nuclear engineering and, 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 go, and go on and on. And da so, in Dash 17 here, we're in the 861 regs, correct? That's right, that's yep. right. Thank you for orienting us. And so, <laughs> so in the foreign tax credit world, there's a rule called exclusive apportionment, and, I, and I'll speak only in the sales context. There's also a, a different rule for gross income, but let's just for simplicity's sake, let's say sales context, that if more than half of, if I'm a US multinational and more than half of my research is conducted in the US, then the first 50% of my research expenses are allocated exclusively, hence the name, to, or I guess apportioned exclusively apportioned. <laughs> to U.S. source income, and then for the remainder of the uh, of the expenses, you you apportion them between statutory and and, and with and among residual groupings. Um, so basically, between foreign source income and U.S. source income, and the the effect of this for foreign tax credit purposes is that you're going to have a higher limitation available to credit taxes, and the reason this is considered appropriate both from a policy standpoint and from a technical standpoint, is that Treasury made a finding in the mid-90s that research performed in the US is more valuable in the domestic market than it is in the foreign market, either because products aren't ever introduced into the foreign market or because there's a significant delay and there's time value of money. And so that's the, that's the premise and is there is there an is there an incentive piece there as well that that exclusive apportionment is yet another reason to locate as much of your r and d spend in the u s as so <laughs> if I were to be so going back to what Lauren said, I think the touchstone of fitty and guilty carrot stick regime here is that you're really trying to equilibrate the rates and that it's I'll tell you sitting here putting on my US multinational hat that uh, FITI is a anti it's a base erosion prevention regime in conjunction with guilty and it's not an illegal export subsidy in within the world of WTO and so sure. that is my my U.S. multinational hat, but but I would be fooling myself if I didn't, and I'd be fooling you and your listeners if we didn't say <laughs> that the sort of ancillary knock-on effect of that, of course, is that if you're uh, if you're not decrementing the limitation for the foreign tax credit, then the, it it removes a barrier to conducting your IP here as opposed through a CFC. Absolutely, the idea is to equilibrate, but it removes that barrier. And the same we we can talk about FITI now, but the same would be true. For FDII. Right. Right. 
And so, uh, so taxpayers commented when this blanket rule came out, and and the service has or Treasury has has relented and removed it. So, what does that mean? Well, well I, I won't opine on what it means for sort of open years like eighteen or nineteen <laughs> because it's a little hard to thread through. So, what they've done is they've they've the the proposed rule had something in it that said you apply the general foreign tax credit expense allocation and apportionment rules for determining what is a qualifying FDII income and non-qualifying FDII income, except we are turning off exclusive apportionment. And then, but the existing foreign tax credit rules, you know, they have references to operative sections and 250 is not one of them. And so it's a little unclear in the absence of of any mention in the FDIA regu regulations, I think one could make arguments either way what you could be doing here. I don't know, you, Lauren, if you, you're nodding your head, like, agree. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I do agree. I, it's, it's not clear, but, you know, we have, we have some, some pieces of evidence here, right? So we know that no one is under any obligation to apply proposed regulations. Absolutely. We know that the IRS has uh, issued a rule in proposed form and then withdrawn that same rule in the final version of the regulations. And we know that it's made uh, 250 an operative section for purposes of 904, which will essentially give life to whatever rule in 861-17 comes out in the future uh, with respect to um, exclusive apportionment 904, already expense allocation writ large, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't have those regulations yet. Um, and so, you know. Well, so, yeah, so given this those conduct. Are, yeah, those so are evidentiary uh, <laughs> items. They're, they're evidence and, they, and none of them points to any sort of definitive conclusion. But if we were to if we were to speculate, since that's a fun thing that we can do, about what happens in the 861 regs, we obviously, Treasury was inclined to put this blanket ban on exclusive apportionment and was talked out of it at least temporarily here. Right. What, what are the odds that something like that comes back in the 861 regs versus, or, or can we say that taxpayers have sort of you know, made made enough hay here, enough <laughs> enough ground up to to convince them to to leave this out. So I'll say that even not just the private comments, but the public comments by Treasury and the IRS have been a little bit mixed here. There's been some trepidation. Yeah. Uh, maybe they just don't want to tip their hand. You know, this the same sequence, a similar sequence happened with uh, old 199, the domestic production activities deduction, where they turned off exclusive apportionment, but otherwise applied all the regular expense allocation rules. And that made sense in that context, because you were talking about domestic production gross receipts, none of it, none of it had a foreign element. And so, and they explained that in the notice. And I almost, when I first saw the proposed rules, I thought, oh, maybe they're just sort of <laughs> cutting and pasting some language here, because there are many <laughs> there are many similarities between 199 and FDII. Yes. Uh, and so, and the, they're walking it back a little, so maybe that's what's going on. I, I will say, and it's nice to be able to sort of speak a little freely with you all. <laughs> I, I think that if they were to not come out in favor of exclusive apportionment, I wonder whether you, and they sort of don't speak to it in a cogent way contemporaneously, 
you might have some state farm type challenges here. Oh, yes, yeah, right. you promised there was an appearance from uh, Lauren. From, from, from. <laughs> so, so you might have, uh, the issue here is when Treasury, so in 1977, the first time R&E regulations came out, there was some version of exclusive apportionment. And then it was smaller, I think it was 30%. And then there were all these statutory overrides for a yeah. period of, from 1977 to 1995, mm -hmm. where they kept changing the rate and it would expire. Mm -hmm. And it was a big political football and nobody, none of the multinationals could plan their research and it was a problem. So in 1995, Treasury commissioned a study uh, from the economic side of, of OTP and concluded that you know, 50% was within a 50% exclusive apportionment as opposed to 25 or 30 or some of the other rates that have been used was within the band of what they thought was supported by the evidence. Uh, and they looked at foreign income in, in many respects based on royalties uh, that were, were earned by US companies. And, and well, royalties in most cases are gonna have the same treatment for foreign source income that they're gonna have for FDII. And so the study is really based on what income are you earning from foreign markets and comparing that to the research being performed by US multinationals in the United States and developing an estimate. So you've got a study on the record here that speaks to my mind almost directly on the issue of what the appropriate rate is in this context. And Treasury has made a finding that US research is not as valuable in the foreign market. So I don't see how you get to a conclusion sort of absent doing a new study, I don't know how they get to the conclusion that exclusive apportionment should not apply in this context. Right, right. And well, yeah, and the, and the State Farm element is that, is this, is this reasonable decision-making for them to ban exclusive apportionment when they have in the past applied it in the 861 context and applied it on an evidentiary basis that for all we know remains in place? So, right. Why, I mean, is, is there something that they could hang their hat on and say, well, FIDI is somehow fundamentally different and therefore we, we need to use a different apportionment rule? Well, it's gonna be harder now that they've made 250 the operative section <laughs> and operative <laughs> section, right? Um, but I think, I mean, Jeff, I think your point is very well, well made. So I read the paper, um, the treasury paper that you were referring to. I think it's a good point in that the reasons for um, this 50% number and the findings with respect to the value of, of U.S. Um, R&E as opposed to foreign haven't changed. And it sounds like by changing the rule for exclusive apportionment solely with respect to Section 250, Treasury was trying to have its cake and eat it too, right? So exclusive apportionment in the 904 context lets you get um, pull some of your expense away from your foreign basket, foreign bucket of income, therefore increasing your limitation, therefore increasing your foreign tax credits to which you have a right to you. On the FIDI side, taking away exclusive apportionment has the effect of reducing your, your um, FIDI deduction. So they're saying, you know, we're gonna let you take advantage of exclusive, exclusive apportionment for 904 purposes, and you might get a bigger, you will get a bigger foreign tax credit um, but to make up for that, we're going to reduce the amount of uh, fitted deduction to which you might be entitled by taking away exclusive apportionment for 250 purposes. That is not good tax policy. That's <laughs> a bizarre, tough needle to thread. I well, I mean, it, it, if the reasons for 
work in the 904 context, the reasons for work in the 250 context. And it just, so happens, <laughs> it just so happens that you have, it's not a double benefit. You have less of a bad result, but that doesn't mean that uh, it's, it's not a correct result. Um, so, so Jeff, you might want to abstain on this one, but taxpayers have returns that are coming due <laughs> and have to make these calculations. So what, what do they do? Do they, Lauren, well, what think, do you, yeah, I go think ahead. To Lauren's point earlier, I won't comment on what we're doing, but <laughs> the, the, you know, the proposed regulations were proposed to be retroactive to the 2019 tax year. And mm -hmm. I, I will say I was getting regular questions as in the lead up to them being released. Do you, what have you heard? Do you know when they're coming out? Because you have to put data requests out to the field and, and, and synthesize those regulations almost immediately to, to file because even the extended due date is October 15th. And most multinationals file earlier so they can facilitate their state returns. So we were all pleasantly surprised to see that the final rules are effective mandatorily for 2021 and forward. And you may early adopt them if you so choose, but are not required to. You may rely on the proposed if you so choose. But again, as you, as you pointed out, Steve, no one's required to rely on a proposed regulation. And you may just hang your hat on uh, a nimble and careful, thoughtful interpretation of the statute in light of the policy purpose. So uh, all of those are options available to taxpayers. And you may file and, and, and consider it some more when you have time to get more data. And, and determine it's appropriate to amend. Uh, but that's, it's, it, I'm glad they decided, Treasury is to be commended for adjusting the effective date, I think. They, they showed a lot of acknowledgement, both on the documentation substantiation front and on the effective date issue, that they understand the difficulties from, even for well-financed tax departments at large Fortune 100 companies, they understand can't just turn on a dime and, and file within weeks. And that, that's much appreciated and right. there should be commended for it. Right, so, so Jeff, you raised a, a, an important um, nuance there when you mentioned the statute that we could rely on. So 250B3 says that, uh, well, makes reference to deductions that are properly allocable to deduction eligible income and that's it. That's and then the proposed regs come in and make the same properly allocable uh, rule with reference to foreign-derived deduction-eligible income. That's right. And I, I don't know if you have any insight onto this, given your time on the Hill, but uh, a few of us noticed that originally, prior to the Senate bill, I believe, the legislation had a reference to principles, subpart F type principles, I think 954 expense mm -hmm. allocation principles. And then that was retained for guilty, but deleted for FDII. And perhaps it was considered inappropriate in a US corp context, or perhaps something else was intended by it. There's no comment in the history about why that happened. And to this day, I have no idea, but I think there's a lot of running room on mm -hmm. what properly allocable means in the absence of an affirmative regulation. I don't know if you have anything you can add on that. Um, well, there's only so much that I, so Fiddy came from the Senate side, as you know, um, and there are a couple things that fell out of, of the earlier version. What you noted, also foreign military sales was explicitly referenced in prior drafts and that fell out and that led to um, we were a little um, unhappy about that. Yes, a lot of conversation. <laughs> we're happy now. We're fine now. We're better now, I know. Um, so I can't really explain why they fell out, um, but it is a difference that's noted. We, 
you know, in the guilty space. And I believe that, um, I can't remember if the House for a Foreign High Return um, amount had properly allocable language in it as well. I don't think so, but <laughs> I can't recall. Um, but I, I, I really can't speak as to why, so I don't know. I don't know what their um, discussions were. There were certainly no conversations in which I took part during conference about putting it back in sure. um, <laughs> the 954 piece. So. I mean, I think there was a lot left on the cutting room floor. I think the... Well, yeah, it was before is, is case in point of, of something that uh, you've got floor statements where people are saying we didn't mean to do this but we got a train has to keep moving so i, I don't want to overread the legislative right, history right. Here. i would not i would not put too much stock in in prior drafts versus what was in tcj primarily for the reason you cite reconciliation is not forgiving um, <laughs> <laughs> in, in fact it's not even tcja because of reconciliation so <laughs> the name know. the name is not it's a long, complicated item. Yeah. So one other item I want to uh, talk about while we have Jeff was a, a little bit of a surprise in the context of, of property and, and what's, what's general property for FITI purposes and what's, what's intangible property. So maybe if one of you could sort of explain why the difference between general property and intangible property ma matters in this context, and then we can talk about what, what the surprise was. Sure. Do you want to go, Jeff, or should I do it? Please go ahead. Okay. Um, so the regs um, came with a, a new concept, which is um, electronic sales of general property with digital content, as opposed to sales of intellectual property, as we think of it. Um, and so the example given in the regs is general property with digital content is a, a song, essentially, that you download and you have the right to use, listen to the song, you buy the song, it's on your, your device, but what you don't own are the copyrights to the song. So you just bought a copy of the song. Um, as opposed to a sale of IP in which you would be, or license in which you would be um, entitled to the right to the copyright. Um, so that's the difference. So there, then, so the the so effectively, <laughs> the song that you own, which exists only in ones and zeros, <laughs> in the ether, is not an intangible. No, because you know, back in the day, that song would have been a CD or a cassette tape. I guess is the best um, example of why it's not IP. It's it's intangible only because of. You know, technological advancements, but it represents something that used to be physical. Well, sure. I mean, in, in, in the context of what we're talking about here, which is, uh, which is property that generates a kind of non-routine return, you would say, well, that's, whatever this is, you don't have to call it a tangible, it's not an intangible in that sense, because exactly. I can't, I bought it, I downloaded it, I can't use it to make to make revenue, to create revenue. Right, right. And that's reflected in kind of the, the end user analysis for the digital content sales, where there's kind of a default rule. They say, well, if you can't figure out where this person's or this user's IP address is, or if they have, as long as you sell less than $50,000 worth of digital content to them um, in the taxable year, we'll use a foreign billing address as evidence of a foreign end user and you can claim the sale. And so to your point, these types of sales are not um, generating 
ridiculous or not expected for the end user to be able or not expected for the seller to be able to generate significant amounts of income from one sale um or and one, that, one that may work for apple and itunes or well i guess people don't really buy songs a la carte anymore i suppose but right. i it, you know query whether it works for most companies that are not in the direct consumer retail types digital setting yeah, I, I think yeah. what treasury was aiming what, at here what, what problems does it pose for for the for, for the, the non-apples non for the non-apples <laughs> is well you have to verify to, to demonstrate that an item such as this uh, such as it is is been sold for foreign use uh, you have to demonstrate at least within the meaning of 6001 substantiation rules and there may be specific ones here, you'll have to refresh me, but you have to demonstrate that the end user has downloaded or installed or accessed this property right. uh, on, a, on a device outside the US. And, and the same is true. There's now a new subcategory of electronically supplied services, which is a little bit more of concern for, for our company, is you've, is, and that's defined incredibly broadly. So it's anything that's not one of the other categories of services that's delivered primarily over the internet or an electronic network. So yeah. it's focused on, not on the nature of the service, but on the mechanism by which it's delivered. delivered right. And so short of me sending something on a horse and buggy over to you, like a written summary report or engineering study, I don't, I don't know what's not an electronically supplied service because if it's in person it's approximate service and if i'm doing work on your property it's a property service if it's advertising it's a general advertising service so i don't know what's not swept in this rule um, but both the generally the general service for electronically supplied services and the rule for copyrighted articles that lauren was talking about they both require you to look through and find out where your user is accessing the item and if I'm not located in Silicon Valley, I don't know that that's information I collect in the ordinary course of business. Kind of runs afoul of the principle that they're trying to, the, uh, Treasury to their credit has really adopted and embraced in the, in the final rules, not trying to force people to develop documentation that doesn't exist already. And so, and it was not previewed as far as I know, this this distinction it wasn't previewed in anything in the proposed no. rules kind of out of whole cloth you know you know more about administrative procedure than i do steve but i don't and this is really i guess it goes a little bit it's less of a substantive rule in some sense and more of a documentation rule so maybe that's fine in a final rule I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, notice, notice and comment exists, <laughs> notice and comment exists for a reason. And, and it, and especially in this, I mean, you, you know, the argument that one might make here is, especially here, you needed to proffer up a proposed rule for comment because you're contemplating tracing the destination use of digital content and like that is not only not only is this like a tax documentation problem this is a, a massive systems issue that we need to iron out well in advance to figure this out so uh, interesting uh, that you well, said destination too oh, go ahead lauren <laughs> well i was just going to say this this whole conversation kind of um 
presupposes a certain type of digital content provider, right? And it makes yes. me think of the earlier conversations around the OECD's work or, or earlier conversations around digital services taxes in general, where you had only a certain type of taxpayer in mind. And, you know, now the OECD rules have expanded um, much beyond what was originally contemplated, I think is fair to say, in terms of who would be the target of these these digital services um, type taxes. And it sounds, it seems like, you know, we have broadly applicable rules, but really a certain kind of delivery model envisioned um, to your point that, you know, this rule, the digital content rule works when you're thinking about songs, but what about- That's right. What about legal services that you're rendering to your foreign clients, right? <laughs> do you have FDII at Miller and Chevalier? I don't know. Maybe you do. Uh, you have to ask them where they're reading your emails. I know. Exactly. <laughs> well, right now, you know, you could be pretty pretty sure that all your domestic clients are reading them. Reading them domestically. <laughs> That's well, you know, Barbados has a nice regime where you can go go work for a year to, uh, without becoming a resident. So you don't know, but. I, I, I want to harken back to what Steve said about, he used the term destination, which is, mm -hmm. you know, these, these destination-based sales taxes, these digital service taxes that are proliferating on a unilateral basis. You know, I think one of the complaints is that from multinationals was that we, uh, that's too cumbersome. We don't collect this we data. We don't know, yeah. And we don't know. And, this is like uh, Mindy Hertzfeld had an article in Tax Notes last month on this. This is if you're going to go claim FDII, how can you at the same time argue argue in these other multilateral forums that you can't do this? Yeah, it just sort of sort of runs against the grain of the, the, you know we haven't been trying to ring fence the digital economy, but this uh, this has echoes of that. I, right. It does, but to a diminished extent, because they did pull back significantly and they just said, you know, if you're claiming run-of-the-mill foreign mineral property sales, you, you can just rely on 6001 rules right. to, to substantiate your, your deduction. And you may have, you know, stronger standing to make that same argument in the international arena where you, where you're, you just are not able to gather that kind of data. But it's true that for the, the kinds of sales and services that people are really in a lather about, those specific documentation rules do apply and you're back in the soup of having to justify um, these sales or the, the foreign use of, of, of these um, transactions and your kind of website. You can find it for US purposes, but you can't find it for Foreign OECD purposes. <laughs> I lost it. <laughs> no, your point's well taken. Well, so. Jeff, thanks so much for appearing. Uh, it was great to have you on. Uh, great discussion. Uh, as I said, we hope to have another Fitty Regs podcast coming out wait, soon. Wait, we didn't ask him for any closing thoughts. Do you just do Oh, do you want? <laughs> no, no, I feel like I've said my piece. Okay, okay. I'm, yeah, and it's, I, I'm just looking at the time. That's. Oh, oh, I'm oh, sure our listeners have made it to the 40-minute mark here. <laughs> and, okay. okay. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs>
That's okay. That's okay. Uh, so Lauren, we're hoping to have uh, another podcast on uh, the fitty regs. So if listeners, if you want to hear uh, about other elements of the fitty regs or any other topics that you think would be a good subject for the podcast, please email us at podcasts at milchev.com. That's podcasts, plural at M-I-L-C-H-E-V.com. Thanks for coming on, Jeff. Thank you. My pleasure. Good to see you both. Thank you.